Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The affidavit is out. The lead starts right now. The Justice Department revealing significant concerns over top-secret documents and lax security at Mar-a-Lago in its push for the FBI's unprecedented search at the former president's home. Plus, Donald Trump's reaction to the affidavit's release. This is a political attack on our country, and it's a disgrace, and the people understand it. And new CNN reporting on former Trump officials who say they're not surprised to hear classified docs were handled in such a haphazard way. Plus, the head of the Federal Reserve today warning of economic pain on the horizon, saying the only way to tame inflation is to slow economic growth, including the job market. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper this afternoon. And we begin with the money lead, a major slide on Wall Street. The Dow, as you can see there, down about 1,000 points. This after a sobering assessment today from the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Taming inflation, Powell warns, will require some pain. Let's get straight to CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon. So, Rahel, Powell's warning really led to a jolt on Wall Street. Uh, That's a pretty significant drop. Yeah, really spooking Wall Street and Main Street in terms of the messaging we heard here. And to put this in perspective, Erica, we haven't seen a day like this in the market since mid-June. Every sector in the S&P 500 closed lower today. So it was a broad-based sell-off as investors really parsed through what Federal Reserve Chairman was trying to get across. He talked about the fact that uh, the Fed will not stop raising interest rates until they are confident. He said, Chairman Powell said, we will keep at it until we are confident the job is done. The job, of course, being lowering inflation. But the concern that's being felt in the markets is that when it's all said and done, we will likely be in a very different place economically in terms of consumer spending, in terms of the labor market. And the fear is that uh, we are much more likely now heading toward a recession. Every time the Fed has to be more aggressive in terms of rate hikes, it increases the likelihood of a policy misstep. And that's what you're seeing in the markets today. Wow. Uh, A lot to look at. Rahel, appreciate it. Thank you. Let's turn out of the politics lead and that bombshell affidavit released today laying out the probable cause for why the FBI felt it was necessary to search the residence of former President Donald Trump. So here's what we learned. In the 15 boxes of documents that Trump returned to the National Archives in January, boxes that had been kept at Mar-a-Lago, were 184 classified documents, 67 of which were confidential, 92 were marked as secret, 25 marked as top secret. The National Archives also flagging this to the DOJ of most significant concern was that highly classified records were unfolded, intermixed with other records and otherwise unproperly identified. Those classified materials were found among newspaper clippings, photos, magazines. Well, agents then grew concerned that there could be more classified documents at Mar-a-Lago where the affidavit notes there is not a secure location authorized for the storage of classified information. But the search wasn't just about getting documents back. Agents also believed that evidence of obstruction will be found at the premises. Let's begin our coverage with CNN's Jessica Schneider, who's been pouring through this 38-page affidavit throughout the afternoon. 
Startling new details about the hundreds of pages of documents former President Trump kept at Mar-a-Lago for months as the National Archives tried to get them back. The top secret stuff and, and compartmental can get people killed. It is completely uh, alarming. The now unsealed affidavit revealing 14 of the 15 boxes the archives retrieved in January 2022 contained classified information, 184 unique documents in all, 67 marked confidential, 92 marked secret, and 25 marked top secret, including documents with markings like HCS, particularly alarming to intelligence experts. The HCS stuff basically means that there's information in those boxes in the basement of Mar-a-Lago that pertain to or possibly came from human sources. They usually get imprisoned, and if it's in a place like Russia or any other authoritarian society, they're oftentimes simply executed. Um, that type of information is just incredibly sensitive. The Justice Department redacting pages of information from the affidavit in order to protect witness information and other key details from the ongoing criminal investigation into classified material at Mar-a-Lago. In particular, prosecutors writing in their legal memo to the judge, information in the affidavit could be used to identify many, if not all, of these witnesses. If witnesses' identities are exposed, they could be subjected to harms including retaliation, intimidation or harassment, and even threats to their physical safety. At the end of the day, this is probably a net plus for the government. The judges found that they have uh, excised all information that would compromise sources and methods or that the Justice Department would be concerned about. But left unredacted is an email Trump attorney Evan Corcoran sent to the National Archives in May claiming Trump had the authority to keep the papers at his Florida home after he left office, saying Trump has absolute authority to declassify documents and presidential actions involving classified documents are not subject to criminal sanction. But DOJ investigators weren't deterred, saying there was probable cause to believe that additional documents that contain classified NDI or national defense information or that our presidential records subject to record retention requirements currently remain at Mar-a-Lago, and there is probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found. What is a good explanation for why really anybody, but certainly a former president included in that group, would want this stuff or have this stuff, you know, stored in the basement? Now, of course, a significant portion of this search warrant affidavit remains redacted, and that's because DOJ's criminal investigation is still moving forward here. Prosecutors have previously revealed they're looking into violations of the Espionage Act, Act concealment of government records and obstruction. So, Erica, the next question is, will anyone ultimately be charged? And if so, who? Erica? Important questions, Jessica. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, we are also getting reaction, not surprisingly, to today's development from Trump World. Want to bring in CNN's Kristen Holmes, who has more on that. Uh, some former officials even weighing in. That's right, Erica. So the reaction from Trump World has really been split into three categories. The first is that very public pushback. And that's where you see the former president. He took to his social media page. He posted saying that this was a total public relations subterfuge by the FBI and DOJ. We heard from his spokesperson. We heard from his allies all across conservative media. This was the face of it saying that this was political and a witch hunt. No surprise there. Uh, the next camp was the people who were a little bit concerned. These are the allies that we've been speaking to over the last several days who worry that Trump is in real legal peril. And they pointed to the fact that there was just such an enormous amount of documents that were there. Could that lead to some kind of legal trouble? Now, the third group, and this was really interesting, this was tr former Trump official staffers at both the White House and at Mar-a-Lago who said that they weren't that 
concerned or even surprised at what the uh, archives found inside those boxes in terms of the classified documents being mixed with newspapers and photos and personal correspondence. And that was because of Trump's record keeping. They said that Trump was known to just walk in and out of a room to go to a box of documents or a stack of documents, sort through it, pull stuff out, move it to a different pile. Uh, One source told me that he had stacks, and that's how he kept things organized. And these stacks could have anything from a tweet that he had written out to the presidential daily briefing. And he would often just stop by a pile, take a couple of them, rifle through them, move them to another pile. Uh, No real sense that there was record keeping there. And another source uh, who was privy to conversations that Trump had around these documents, said that he was really often showing off some of these documents, some of his correspondence with Kim Jong-un, for example. Just another way that these documents were not properly kept or stored. So they weren't shocked to hear that there was a box that had both classified documents that were mislabeled, as well as newspaper clippings and photographs. It is telling. Uh, Kristen Holmes, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Also with us, CNN's Caitlin Collins, uh, former assistant U.S. attorney Ellie Honig, and CNN's Abby Phillip. Ellie, let's start with you on this. When we look at everything that we did learn in this affidavit, I know you were hoping you would learn certain things. I think you got a little bit of what you wished for, (laughs) despite all of the redactions here. One of the things that stood out, the judge noted there were multiple civilian witnesses. That stood out to you. Why? I think there was a lot of really important pieces of information in here. Multiple civilian witnesses, if we break this down. I mean, civilian witnesses means normal people, not cops, not FBI agents, not military personnel. Normal people, if they're witnesses, they have firsthand knowledge, meaning around Donald Trump, um, around Mar-a-Lago. And the phrasing that DOJ used, that prosecutors use, sometimes you can sort of decode this stuff. Significant numbers, a broad range. So that doesn't mean one. I can tell you that for sure. It doesn't mean two. You wouldn't say that for two for a judge. So we're not just talking about one person who sort of turned from the inside circle. We're talking about a lot of different people giving FBI information that they felt comfortable going to a judge and using to establish the probable cause they needed to do this search. Which is interesting, too, when we think about how much may behind, be behind this, right, and the concerns over um, what needed to be redacted. And obviously a significant amount of that was, you know, Caitlin, as we were just hearing from Kristen, the way that former President Trump was known to handle documents when he was in the White House, right? I'm going to take this. I don't know where it goes. I'm going to throw it over here, right? I'm going to make some notes on things. When you hear about that and then we hear about how all of these documents were mixed up in boxes, I mean, just based on your experience covering that administration, covering that White House, is it surprising? No. If you if you know how Trump handled documents, it's not surprising at all, given you know his staff secretary, which is the person who controls the paper flow through in and out of the Oval Office, really important documents, executive orders, memos, things that the president has to sign. And te- technically, they need his signature. They always had a really tough job, whether it was Trump telling them, go and create this executive order for me to do X, Y, Z, which he did not have the authority to do. It was always a point of focus. And that office always had, you know, one of the more challenging roles, I would say, in the Trump West Wing. And so when you're reading through the affidavit today of what's not redacted and they talk about what they took in those 15 boxes and they say it was a collection of newspapers, magazines, articles that had been printed out, photos, miscellaneous printout notes, personal and post-presidential notes, and also a lot of classified records, all mixed in, none of it really properly documented. It said it was unfoldered, mixed in, not labeled properly. None of that's a surprise. The question here is whether it's a defense and whether they try to use that as a defense. Because the one thing that we did know from the end of Trump's time in the White House was 
people notice a lot of documents going over to the residence part of the White House, not staying inside the West Wing. And people raised questions about it. And Pat Cipollone, who was the top attorney inside the White House, clearly had questions about it. So I do think that is the other side uh, of the factor here. It's not just him taking a bunch of stuff, as some Mm -hmm. people have said. The question is whether or not he knew intentionally what was mixed up in these boxes. And, you know, Abby, I know you pointed out um, and actually mentioned to me earlier, one of the things that stood out to you was this letter that was included that Jessica just mentioned as well from Evan Corcoran, attorney for the Trump team, which also plays into all that we're learning about what was there and perhaps what was or was not known about what was there. That letter is dated in back in May, and that's prior to this search of uh, the former president's residence. And it indicates a couple of things to me. One, they were very aware that this was a serious criminal matter. Uh, his attorney, Corcoran, wanted this document included as an exculpatory document, even though what it seems to indicate is that uh, they were trying to uh, come up with some legal explanations or excuses for why Trump's behavior would, would, would not warrant a criminal action on the part of the DOJ. To me, that's telling. They already knew the things were were going south. But then on top of that, uh, they've had so many opportunities to just simply return the documents. If this was just a question of whether Trump uh, was, you know, putting documents in the wrong place and just kind of mishandling them, oops, they ended up in this box and they should have been in this box, that would be one thing. What's unanswered in all of this is why the documents were not returned Uh, On multiple occasions, uh, it took the National Archives seven months to get the first tranche of documents back from Mar-a-Lago. And then subsequent efforts to get documents back didn't bring back all the ones that were classified. To me, this is just uh, the Trump team once again, uh, you know, revealing information that is not at all exculpatory. It only shows that they pushed back and pushed back hard, frankly, when DOJ tried to get a a sense of what was left in Mar-a-Lago in terms of these very sensitive documents. Which makes you wonder why, right? Why all the pushback? Ellie, there are also questions about the timeline here, not just the timeline, which we've talked a fair amount about, about how long it took to get the documents, but then once they had this first, like these first 15 boxes of documents, so they get them in January. The FBI doesn't look at them until May. I mean, that seems like a really long time. You have these boxes you've been fighting to get back and no one's opening them up. Yeah, I can't even begin to explain that, Erica. Look, no question Donald Trump's strategy in this matter, as it often is, is just to delay, to drag this out as long as possible. Primarily, the delay, as Abby just laid out, is on the Trump team. But DOJ and the archives took their merry time as well. I mean, to allow five months to lapse with those documents sitting there before they're reviewed. But it is important to keep in mind, during that crucial period in early 22. That is when this case escalated from the archives trying to get Mm -hmm. these documents back administratively, bureaucratically, up into a criminal matter. And to me, that's one of the biggest questions that we had answered today. How did this get to DOJ? How did this become FBI involved? How did this become criminal? It's because they got those boxes. They saw there was highly classified documents that had been Unfolded word of the day. I hadn't heard that, but unfolded. I, I, <laughs> I can know. figure. It I out. thought it was just me, the non-lawyer, but unfolded yeah. to you too. I use okay. context clues to figure <laughs> out what it means. But I mean, to see classified documents mixed in with newspaper clippings, photos. No wonder that's alarming. And then when they realized we didn't even get them all, there's more. That's when they called in the heavy hitters at DOJ and FBI. Also, I think part of this was Trump does not care about the National Archives. He does not <laughs> respect it as an institution. Likely wasn't familiar with it. And this is what I've heard from people when when I talked about. You know, clearly they made very obvious that they wanted these documents back, that they that they didn't belong to Trump, that he you know didn't have this ability to keep them. But Trump, what people argued is, you know, he doesn't see the National Archives as this, you know, uh, an 
entity that really has teeth that he has to listen to. Mm -hmm. I think when the Justice Department got involved, there was a little bit different, but it does raise questions, you know, about the correspondence and what that looked like. And so one argument that also stood out in the letter that Abby was talking about is his attorney makes the argument that he has the power to declassify things, and that's what we've heard from other people. He doesn't say that he did declassify all of these documents that were interspersed unfolded <laughs> in, these, in these boxes. Um, it is, as we look at all of this too, Abby, the message has been this well-worn message, right, of this is a witch hunt and this is all political. But based on everything we're learning now, I wonder, perhaps the message doesn't change from the former president himself, but is there a sense that this information could be taking some of the wind out of the sails of other people who are trying to push that narrative? Well, I don't think it's really stopped the Trump team from claiming that it's political, but it's it's that, that's a baseless claim. Everyone could go online and find the document, read it themselves, and determine whether it's political or not. It's a pretty straightforward legal document, and uh, and and there's really no inkling of politicization except in the part of the document that is a letter from Trump's team, which uh, notably says that Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. At every turn, the Trump team is the one that reminds everyone about the political side of this. Uh, but, I, but I will say this. Look, I think uh, the American people are not stupid. I think people understand what classified documents are. They understand the sensitivity of it. They understand that the president in particular has a special responsibility to treat those documents with care. And so I don't necessarily think that spin that is totally outside of the realm of the facts is necessarily going to prevail here because it just uh, you have to just apply a common sense test to this. And I think most people understand that classified documents should not be in anybody's home uh, willy nilly put in with your um, you know, picture of you and your your kids. It, that's just not how things are supposed to be handled. And people get that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh Thank you all. Ellie, stick with us. I know you're going to we're going to continue to talk about this a little bit. And just a reminder, you can catch Abby Phillip this and every weekend on Inside Politics Sunday, 8 and 11 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Well, that affidavit behind the Mar-a-Lago search also notes, quote, clandestine human sources, spies. Could some of the boxes recovered from the former president have put national security and perhaps lives at risk? We'll ask a former CIA official. Plus, American Mark Fogel locked up in a Russian jail. The Biden administration making a brand new request to bring him home. We're back with more from our politics lead, a judge releasing a redacted version of the affidavit used to search Mar-a-Lago earlier this month. Ellie Honig back with me, along with Steve Hall, joining the conversation, of course, worked in intelligence. So, Steve, when we look at this affidavit, it says some of these documents had markings on them. Among the markings, HCS, which stands for um, Human Intelligence Control System. Basically, these could be foreign agents. They could be spies. So the documents... I guess there's an understandable concern that they could perhaps reveal the identities of people who were working in the field for the U.S. government or perhaps folks in law enforcement, national security. When you hear that, when you see what is in this affidavit, what is your biggest concern? Yeah, it's, it, it really does send, send chills up the spine of anybody who's ever worked at CIA and worked with human intelligence. So human, human intelligence is information that is collected abroad uh, you know, from, from humans, from people. Uh, and so, you know, we heard, we've heard that the other, some of the other documentation in there is, you know, at, at top secret SCI. SCI is usually more 
technical in nature. It's, it's technical spying. Uh, but when you see human, you're talking about people. And so if somebody finds out that you're doing something technical, they can take measures. But if somebody finds out that you have a spy, if a foreign government says, oh, well, from this information, I can either tell because of the nature of the information or perhaps how it's phrased, I, I can figure out who that spy is. I can mount a counterintelligence operation in my country and basically imprison them or execute them, uh, as would happen in a place like Russia or China. So Again, it boggles the mind as to why any civilian, anybody who does not have a, a skiff, a secure location to store that information, would, would keep that type of extremely sensitive and potentially extremely damaging information at their homes, Erica. There's also, there were a couple of other classifications that were listed in the affidavit, FISIS or FISA, ORCON, no foreign SI. No foreign stood out to me. That's no foreign nationals, meaning no foreign nationals right. should see those documents. We've talked a lot, you know, just in this hour about the haphazard nature the former president had when he would look at documents, throw them in one place. They didn't go back where they were supposed to. The fact, though, that that was allowed to continue and then these ended up at boxes and ended up at a private residence. I mean, how concerned are you about what else may have been there? Yeah, I'm, I'm extremely concerned. The no foreign stuff, no, no foreigners allowed to see it, that's, that's a concern. That's a pretty broad classification for a lot of secret and sensitive documents. The FISA stuff is particularly troubling as well. So FISA stands for the, you know, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. That's the act that, that, that allows uh, the U.S. government to spy in the United States, to collect, to surveil in the United States foreign spies, foreigners who are trying to spy against the United States. The Russians do this all the time. The Chinese do this all the time. And to find a FISA document means that the former president decided to keep some classified information that had only to do with that topic, counterintelligence investigations of foreigners trying to spy on the United States. Again, the question that Abby mentioned in the previous segment is, why? Why in the world would anybody keep that information so sensitive and so potentially damaging, Erica? It does. You know, I wonder, Ellie, if there if there could potentially be some argument from the Trump team of, well, if this is the way that he handled documents, right, as Kristen Holmes was reporting, former officials were not surprised to hear that there were boxes commingled with unfolded, uh, <laughs> you know, un- properly identified classified documents, newspaper clippings, photos. Could that be a defense of, oh, well, I didn't know that they were in there. I didn't take it on purpose. Yeah. I mean, not only could it be a defense, but let's remember, we're, we're very focused on the defenses here, rightly so, because Trump and his Defenders have offered up all manner of defenses, many of which hold very little, if any, water, and some of which are self-contradictory. But if there's going to ever be a prosecution, prosecutors have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And what you have to prove, the hardest part often of what you have to prove as a prosecutor is knowledge and intent, essentially, that Donald Trump had some idea what was in those boxes and that he acted with intent to violate one of the laws. You don't have to show that he understood each of the specific elements of the law. But if it's the case that this was just careless mayhem, you know, sort of chaos... That's not going to be enough for prosecutors. And what about this claim, you know, that he had absolute authority to declassify documents? So there's two issues here. First of all, it is widely agreed that the president has very broad authority to declassify. Some argue unlimited. This is a debate that's been going on in law schools and constitutional circles for decades. I actually tend towards unlimited authority. But there's a separate question of did he use that authority? Because even if he has unlimited authority, you need some evidence that he exercised that while he was president. Today, I have seen no such evidence and quite a bit of counter evidence, including those 18 former officials who told CNN they had never heard of or seen any evidence of any such declassification. Yeah, definitely raises some questions. You know, see, when we look at this, is you know, 37, 38 pages, uh, by my very unofficial count, almost half of it feels like it's redacted. There are entire pages, right, that are blacked out. 
typically this would remain under seal until there were charges or if there were never charges, perhaps later on, we would learn what was in this. What do you think the chances are that we ultimately do learn what's behind those black lines? I'm sorry, was that to me, Erica? It was, Steve, yeah. You know, my sense is is that uh, it it seems like the legal folks have done the best they can at DOJ to try to parse out um, the stuff that would be truly damaging. Uh, And they were, of course, told to do so by the judge, and the judge seemed pleased with what they were able to come up with. So, you know, I, I, I guess I kind of hope that we don't really see. I mean, it doesn't sound mm-hmm. particularly transparent, but again, sources and methods and the damage that can be done if that, if that redacted information uh, is that. I can tell you, certainly, foreign intelligence services are going to try to focus on what's, what's been redacted, and they're going to continue to focus on Mar-a-Lago as a place to take a look at because we all now know that that information that's stored in a basement of Mar-a-Lago or elsewhere is relatively easily accessible, and they've tried to do it before. The Chinese have tried it, and now we have some interesting new reporting about perhaps a Russian-speaking Ukrainian uh, woman who might have also had access to Mar-a-Lago. So that's, that's going to be what people are going to be looking at, I think. Yeah, Steve Hall, Ellie Honig, appreciate your expertise, both of you. Thank you. Up next, burying the victims of war by number rather than name. Ukrainian cities, the scenes of some of the earliest atrocities in the early days of the invasion, still suffering with death and grief. In our world lead, the Russian-controlled Zaporizhian nuclear power plant has been reconnected now to Ukraine's electricity grid. The plant was cut off from the grid for the first time in its history on Thursday after nearby fires caused damage to the one remaining power line. And this is all raising fears about the safety of Europe's biggest nuclear power plant. CNN Sam Kiley has more now on what happened and just how fragile this situation has become. Ukraine's biggest nuclear power plant is making history that no one wants to read. Its six reactors are the first ever to have fallen into enemy hands and the first to have the main power source for their cooling systems cut during combat. They're also the first to have triggered the emergency cooling system to avoid meltdown and a radioactive disaster because of war. If the diesel generators hadn't turned on, if the automation in our staff on the plant had not reacted after the blackout, then we would already be forced to overcome the consequences of a radiation accident. Its only source of mainline electricity from government-held territory was cut, the government here says, by Russian shelling. Russia captured the plant in March and has been using it as an artillery fire base for a month. It's been hitting civilian towns west across the Dnieper River. Civilians have been fleeing Enohoda, the town closest to the plant, in fear of war and of a radioactive disaster brought on by it. Russian troops, they said, were ill-disciplined and dangerous. We tried to keep away from them because it was scary. They walked around with machine guns and who knows what they could do. At night they would get drunk, shoot in the air. People were scared. The power to cool the systems was restored yesterday and the reactors eventually reconnected to the Ukrainian grid on Friday, supplying up to a fifth of the country's electricity. But Kyiv fears that Russia may cut power to its cooling system again as part of the alleged plan to steal its output, and that would risk a meltdown. Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is only about 20 miles from where I'm standing. There's a powerful easterly blowing at the moment. If there was a disaster there, radioactive material would be carried into the sun and into Europe. 
International demands that Russia removes its forces from the plant and allow nuclear inspectors in are increasingly strident. And in Ukraine, nuclear decontamination drills are just another part of war. Now, the International Atomic Energy Authority is saying that they hope to get access to this plant inside the next few days. That's much quicker than had been anticipated. It's not clear whether their inspections will mean that there could be some kind of demilitarization uh, going forward. But that is the international demand to get the Russians to withdraw at least their military from this power plant and take it off the front line. Uh, there's a lot to take in. Sam Kiley in Zaporizhia. Thank you. Well, it's now been uh, just over six months since Russia launched that full-scale invasion in Ukraine. The U.N. Human Rights Office estimates more than 5,000 Ukrainian civilians have died so far in the war. In Bucha, where Russian forces left behind mass graves in the early days of the war, the dead are now being buried with numbers rather than names. CNN's David McKenzie takes a closer look now at Ukrainians reeling from the impact of these past horrors as they brace for new ones. And I do want to warn you, the images in this report are graphic. In Butcher, they lived in peace, had families and names. But they died in a war that no one here wanted. Behind each number, an unknown victim. A life worthy of Father Andre Havilland's prayer. Each person had their own life. And each had one and only one, he says. It's not just bodies that we are burying. For us, these are people who lived once. People to whom the Russians brought suffering and death. Butcher is now synonymous with the horrors and brutality of Russia's war of choice. When their army retreated, their burnt-out tanks were cleared. Butcher seems almost normal now. Almost, but not. Not here, not anywhere in Ukraine. Because they are still discovering the dead. A police forensic team gathers evidence at a shallow grave. They say a man was shot as he fled. They found more than 1,300 bodies in Greater Kyiv alone. Everything changed on February 24th, says Kyiv's police chief. They invaded our country and started killing people. It's very difficult for any country to prepare for this because you never expect such cruelty. The cruelty, the sheer weight of loss for Alexander is hard to comprehend. This is where the shots were fired, he says and where the car was on fire. His family, like others, tried to flee the Russian advance. They came to butcher from Ukraine's war in the east. They were happy here. Matvi and Klim were inseparable. The boys, a joy for their father. But as they escaped butcher, he says a Russian armored vehicle struck their car again and again. Everyone died. Only Alexander lived. My oldest would have been 10. My youngest, 5, he says. 
треба зробити все щоб. It's very hard. Justice must be restored. Everything must be done to destroy the Russians, to destroy the nation completely. Probably you can't say that. But I want this whole nation to not exist at all. So that there would not be so much grief. So much grief, too much for any nation to bear in a war that still shows no end. Well, it was so hard to hear Alexander's story, and the whole team was really deeply affected by it. You know, we talk about military assets and who's winning this war and how, but really the civilians in this conflict have been so deeply traumatized by six months and two days of fighting. Erica? They absolutely have, uh, and so important to remember that, too. David McKenzie, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. The U.S. State Department confirms a U.S. citizen has been killed in Ukraine. It has not released the name of the American nor details of what happened out of respect for the privacy of the family. But this marks at least the fourth American who has now died in that Russian invasion. An urgent request. Why the Biden administration is asking Russia to release a detained American immediately. The State Department is asking Russia to release another detained American. Mark Fogel was arrested 11 months ago at a Moscow airport after traveling with about 17 grams of cannabis. His family says he used it for chronic back pain. Well, he lost a recent appeal of his 14-year prison sentence. CNN's Kylie Atwood joining us now with more. So, Kylie, specifically, how is the State Department now trying to get Fogel released? Yeah, so what we're learning from Mark Fogel's family and his legal team is that the State Department has made a humanitarian request to Russia, an appeal for them to release him based on humanitarian grounds. Now, they don't know exactly uh, what the argument that the State Department put forth was, but their expectation is that it has to do with his age. He's 61 years old and his medical condition. He has this chronic back pain. And when I spoke earlier this week with his sister, she talked about the fact that the physician that he sees in Russia doesn't even have a translator that uh, comes with them. So the medical condition that he is in is increasingly concerning to his family. The State Department isn't talking specifically about this humanitarian request that they have put in, but they are acknowledging that they are urging Russia to provide appropriate medical assistance to all Americans who are detained in the country. So this request to specifically, there are, of course, efforts to bring home Brittany Griner, Paul Whelan, who are also in Russia. How does this figure in and or complicate matters? Yeah, well, Paul, Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner are considered by the U.S. government wrongfully detained. And it sounds wonky, but it's a really incredibly important term because what that means is that diplomats are really working hard to secure their release. They're putting forward uh, proposals. This is an ongoing effort. When it comes to Mark Fogel, he has not been determined, determined wrongfully detained. And so because of that, there isn't quite the diplomatic back and forth that there is for the other two Americans. And so that is a significant difference here. Now, we should note that his family wants the State Department to put that label on him. And also senators are calling on the Secretary of State to label him wrongfully detained because they say his 14-year prison sentence simply cannot be understood without it being a political ploy in terms of what President Putin is trying to get out of the United States. But we should remind viewers that he did enter into the country with those 17 grams of cannabis. And of course, that is something that is against Russian law and something that the State Department has to look at. Erica? Kylie Atwood, appreciate the updates. Thank you. Up next, how the race to save lives is now setting up a legal fight among two giants in the COVID vaccine business.
In our health lead, the FDA may be just days away now from authorizing the first updated booster that protects against Omicron variants. A Biden administration official says Pfizer could get that go-ahead on or before next Thursday. Well, all of this is unfolding as Moderna is now suing Pfizer and BioNTech for patent infringement. Moderna accuses Pfizer of copying its mRNA vaccine technology to develop a COVID vaccine of its own. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joining us now. So uh, what could happen here? I mean, how significant is this lawsuit, Elizabeth? So, Erica, the first thing I want to say is that Moderna is not trying to take Pfizer's shot off the market. I think that's important to know, especially, as you said, when we're moving into a new booster. They don't want to do that. What they want is a cut of Pfizer's profits. They say that Pfizer essentially copied its technology. Pfizer says, look, we've been working hand in hand with the German biotech company um, uh, BioNTech. And we, they have their own proprietary mRNA vaccine. I'm sorry, mRNA te- technology. We are not copying Moderna's. We'll see how this plays out. Moderna, meanwhile, is being sued itself for the exact same thing. Two bio- biotech companies are suing Moderna. So certainly the lawyers will uh, be very busy. Yeah, I was just going to say, we'll keep them very, very busy. It sounds yes. sort of circular in a way as well. Yes. Um, meantime, <laughs> let's talk about Paxlovid. There's so much discussion about Paxlovid. Every time we hear about these rebound cases... Are they more common? Pfizer says that only 2% of people who have COVID-19 and take Paxlovid get a rebound. But they did that study during Delta, not Omicron. Maybe it's higher now. Let's take a look at an NIH study. NIH did a big study. They said it's more like 5.4%, which is certainly much larger than 2%. But, Erica, I'll tell you, once you start thinking about people you know personally who've had rebound, I certainly know people, and just people who we know who are out in the public sphere. President Biden has had rebound. His wife, uh, Dr. Jill Biden, has had a rebound. Dr. Anthony Fauci has. So has Stephen Colbert. All of them took Paxlovid and experienced rebound. Two uh, faces familiar to people who watch CNN, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, both of them had Paxlovid rebound. One of the theories here is that what's going on is you only take Paxlovid for five days. And one of the theories is, hmm, maybe that uh, length should have been longer. The FDA has asked for more data on this, Erica. So we'll we'll see if we get more data on that. Meantime, when it does come to Paxlovid, who should be taking it, especially if there are these rebound cases? Is it effective? Yes. I want to be very clear here. These rebound cases make news and they are important, but the drug also does save lives. Now, if you're young and healthy, you probably don't need to take this drug. I mean, you'll get through COVID just fine and you won't have to deal with the possibility of rebound. But there are people who should be taking Paxlovid because they're at higher risk. Older people, people with underlying conditions, for them, it really can do a lot of good. Keep them out of the hospital, keep them from dying. And there you see the list of the folks who should be taking it. An Israeli study found that people who took Paxlovid were four times less likely to end up in the hospital. I mean, that's a pretty significant number. Uh, Elizabeth Cohen, appreciate it as always. Thank you. Thanks. Top secret files, a private club. Why Mar-a-Lago posed a serious security risk and added urgency to federal agents who wanted some documents returned. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper. This hour, NASA's most powerful rocket yet is sitting on the launch pad, ready to kick off a high-stakes race to the moon. But Mother Nature may have other plans in mind. Plus, a major stock sell-off after tough words from the chair of the Federal Reserve now warning American households and businesses you're about to feel some, quote, pain in order to bring down inflation. What does that really mean for your wallet and even for your job? 
And leading this hour, the world has now seen some of the reasons the FBI felt they had probable cause to search Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. Uh, those reasons laid out in the newly unsealed affidavit document detailing how Trump initially handed over 15 boxes of documents from Mar-a-Lago in January. Well, by May, investigators had gone through those boxes and in them they found 184 classified documents. 67 of those marked confidential, 92 marked a secret, 25 top secret. The affidavit goes on to explain investigators were worried that more classified documents were still at Mar-a-Lago and that they weren't being properly secured. Let's begin our coverage with CNN's Pamela Brown, who has the key takeaways this afternoon from that bombshell affidavit released just a few hours ago. Now public, a heavily redacted version of the affidavit that led to the FBI search at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. In it, shocking new details. The FBI telling a judge that there is probable cause to believe that additional documents that contain classified NDI or that are presidential records subject to record retention requirements currently remain at the premises. There is also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at the premises. The affidavit also revealing startling details about improperly handled documents that were marked with the highest levels of security clearance. As a former CIA guy, it sends chills up and down my spine, my spine when I hear that there's HCS information in somebody's basement and not secured as it properly should. It's just, it's, it's, it's really, really bad. HCS standing for Human Intelligence Control System, which is a classification designed to protect people working around the world for the U.S. government. In 14 of the 15 boxes retrieved in January by the National Archives, 184 documents had unique classification markings. 67 marked as confidential, 92 marked as secret, and 25 marked top secret. The top secret stuff and, and compartmental can get people killed. It is completely uh, alarming. Nobody down there except, well, not even Trump any longer, even has a clearance at all. According to DOJ, the document is heavily redacted to protect witness information and other key details from the ongoing criminal investigation. Prosecutors explaining in their legal memo to the judge, Information in the affidavit could be used to identify many, if not all, of these witnesses. If witnesses' identities are exposed, they could be subjected to harms including retaliation, intimidation or harassment, and even threats to their physical safety. We're also learning new insights as to what led to the investigation in the first place. The National Archives made a criminal referral to the DOJ in February, saying there was significant concern after finding that boxes retrieved by the archive contained highly classified records, intermixed with other records and not properly identified. This leading the DOJ and FBI to launch their own investigation, issuing a subpoena in June for classified material, and ultimately the search of Mar-a-Lago earlier this month. Trump reacting on his social media platform, leaning into the fact that the affidavit is, quote, heavily redacted and calling it a total public relations subterfuge by the FBI and DOJ. And the FBI said today in one of the court filings that it has interviewed a significant number of civilian witnesses as part of this probe. Sources tell me the FBI has interviewed current and former Trump aides and that that is likely why uh, the FBI believed it had probable cause that there were still classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, which is why it felt it needed to execute that search warrant. And indeed, we know, Erica, that 11 sets of documents marked classified were taken away from Mar-a-Lago in August after that search warrant was executed.
Yeah, a lot in there. Pamela Brown, appreciate it. Thank you. Also with me, Don Ayer, former Deputy Attorney General in the George H.W. Bush administration and CNN National Security Analyst, Sean Turner. So as Pamela laid out there what we learned in this affidavit, right, the reasoning, the probable cause they believe they had to go in and get these documents back in August. They did find 11 sets of classified documents, as Pamela just pointed out, back on August 8th. Don, based on everything that we have seen play out over the last three weeks or so, and what we learned today from this affidavit, do you believe the Justice Department is going about this the correct way? I do. I, I, I think what they've managed to do, and it's a very difficult challenge because they really can't talk about the specifics of this for all the reasons they gave, but they've nonetheless, through a process really that the court has uh, entered orders to facilitate, they've managed to get a story out for people who pay attention to understand what's going on. And what's going on is they really didn't have any choice but to pursue this warrant, having tried several other ways of getting these documents back. And, and they didn't have any real alternative but to redact the affidavit in the way they did. The judge made that perfectly clear. So I think they've done a pretty exemplary job of uh, getting enough of the story out so people can understand it. At the same time, they're doing their job in not disclosing the information that can't become public. Well, part of that story that we learned about today, obviously, right, those 184 documents that had classification markings that were found in 14 of the 15 boxes recovered from Mar-a-Lago back in January. Sean, when you when you see those classifications, the way that they break down, the further concerns about you know, human intel, perhaps these are spies, they're foreign agents who are working with the U.S., the way that these documents were labeled, what more does that tell you? And, and what are your further concerns about what could have been in those documents? Yeah, you know, uh, you said the magic number. Uh, you know, when I saw that there were 184 classified documents, that really stood out to me. To me. And let, let me tell you why. Look, I, I spent years in the intelligence community, both uh, working uh, at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and at the White House. And I was surrounded by classified information all the time. I cannot remember a single instance, a single time when either I or those who were around me who worked with classified information had dozens and dozens of classified documents laying around in an office in a situation where they could be packed up and moved to one place. I mean, it's pretty standard that when you were done reviewing a classified documents, we put it, put those documents in what we call burn bags so that it could be properly disposed of. So what that tells me when I read that, that tells me one of two things had to happen. Either... As someone was going through these documents over a period of time, they were deliberately putting documents aside so that those documents could be maintained or, or, or taken at a later date. That would have had to happen for this number. That would have had to happen over a long period of time. Or, and this is really important, at some point prior to January 18th, 2020, when we know that that truck showed up at Mar-a-Lago with documents, at some point prior to that, someone would have had to go and deliberately print out documents that were going to be packed up and taken away from the White House. Either way, and we don't know which of those cases it, it, we're talking about here, but either way, that's a major concern for me because as we've been talking about throughout this, that gets to intent. Why are these documents there at Mar-a-Lago? We don't know, but we, we need to find out. You know, it also raises, Sean, I just want to stick with you on this point for because it raises two points for me, right? The two options that you say are there. If these documents are that sensitive 
I would imagine it's pretty tough to just go find them on a server somewhere and print them out, number one, without a, without a trail, right, and without needing some sort of security clearance to get in there to be able to do that. And number two, if they were taken, let's say, one at a time and put somewhere else, shouldn't there be a trail? I mean, there's a trail when you had to look at documents in a skiff, right? You had to give them back or you had to show that you had put them back in a secure location before you left that room. You can't take them home with you at night. Yeah, and I think everything you you, you said is is true for uh, for anyone below uh, beneath the level of the president and his most senior advisors, uh, and that's why this this really stands out to me because mm-hmm. uh, if an intelligence official goes and briefs the president and hands the president a classified document, and the president wants to review that document. Well, the president has that document, and the the assumption has always been that he's the president of the United States. He will have that document as long as he needs that document in order to review the information. Uh, if I or or someone else beneath that level uh, has a classified document, uh, you know, there's a, there's a process to make sure those documents are dealt with appropriately. So, uh, so so you're absolutely right. I mean, there should be a process unless. This was someone who was around the president or the president himself. Yeah, so many questions. Now, when we look at processes, too, one of the things that really stood out to me today was learning that these documents had been returned right in January, but the FBI didn't actually go through them, start going through them until May. Does Is that typical? In my mind, it would seem you finally get those documents back. You get these documents for your archives. You want to go through them right away. I, it's surprising to me if that's the case that that they actually didn't go through them uh, until until May because you you would think that you probably would. Um, the only thought I might have is that they were dealing with a former president and they were not trying to be in a in a mad race and yet ultimately it became perfectly clear that they absolutely had to act on on the problem that was created here. Uh, we're unfortunately going to have to leave it there. But Don Ayer, Sean Turner, I, uh, I'm pretty sure this will not be the last time we talk about it. Appreciate you both joining us with your expertise. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there is still more to discuss in terms of this affidavit, including how the timing of it could play in to Donald Trump's decision on whether to run for office again. Also, a look at why some Republican candidates are now downplaying their anti-abortion rights stances. So... Will that work or could it backfire? Plus, more questions as the White House says it won't know how much the student loan payoffs will actually cost until they know how many people sign up. So who wouldn't want to try to get $10,000 from Uncle Sam? Back now with our politics lead. Today's release of the Mar-a-Lago search warrant affidavit underscoring the highly sensitive nature of documents that have been kept there and also revealing prosecutors told a federal judge they believe there was likely evidence of obstruction of classified defense documents in the former president's Florida residence. So what does all this mean? Let's discuss with Stead Herndon from The New York Times and Emily No from New York One. Good to have you both in studio. We look at this, you know, said Republicans have demanded, right? They have said from the beginning, federal authorities, they have to justify this search. They have to show us why they did. So in terms of what was revealed, this was a heavily redacted document, but there was still a whole lot of information in there, 184 classified documents yeah. spread over 14 to 15 boxes. Does that change anything? 
I don't think you'll see a change to the Republican response because we know that much of that response wasn't really in good faith. What they were doing was matching the political response from Trump and his allies that really try to change the goalpost on this issue. What we saw today was a continuation, I think, of what we've seen from the Justice Department, which is a meticulous laying out that they went through the processes that were normal and expected, even above and beyond, particularly considering that this was the president of the United States we were talking about, that they did that engagement early, that they made sure that they went and proved that case out to the judge to get that signed before they went to Mar-a-Lago. But still, I do not expect that to really change what we see from Republicans. I saw a tweet from Mick Mulvaney that was saying, mm-hmm. uh, oh, this was still just about documents. Right. I think we're going to see, though, that them really try to centralize on that message because it's the one that insulates Donald Trump politically, which we know for many folks is their number one, uh, 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 is their number one goal here to, to, to protect the person that really supercharges their base. And also the chances of, right, I can see the next call being, well, then show us what's in that. Tell us why exactly. these were mm-hmm. classified, why they were top secret. We know we're not going to get that information. Well, right? It's always a moving of the goalposts, right? Show us the search warrant, show us the affidavit, show us the surveillance video. Even if it's in its heavily redacted form, this affidavit, as you said, lays out the clearest picture yet of why the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago. And it's going to give uh, the former president a really hard time in terms of response because already we see how he's reacting on Truth Social. And a lot of what he's saying is what he said before, that it's a witch hunt, that it's politicized. He's not, there's no new ground for him to tread. What do you think it does in terms of or how could it influence his decision of when, right, let's 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 assume that he is going to run like when he declares his candidacy? Does this move that date at all? I don't know if we see it move that date, but I think that, you know, it's hard to be in Donald Trump's head, right? That should be, yes, the, it is. That should be the number one caveat here. He is the only one. To be clear, not decisions. asking you to go there. No, 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 right? no, no, no. <laughs> even the folks close to him, you hear say that, right? right. It's hard to know with anybody. And that he is changing his mind in real time. But I think the real pressure here is going to be for where Republicans are in the midterms. Mm. I mean, we have seen, we have seen really the party move further and further away from the position they were in per the summer. And there's been some real, uh, uh, there's some real angst on the Republican side that the, that the Senate candidates in particular, ones that were chosen by Donald Trump, ones that have defended him at every step of the way, they thought this FBI rate was going to motivate voters, was going to really bring the midterms closer to them. And we have not seen evidence of that yet. So I think there will be increased, uh, an increased look for um, among the Republican Party at large to say, how do we deal with the, quote, Trump, uh, the dual side of the Trump problem? Both the voters he does bring to the polls uniquely, but also the voters he scares away uniquely. That's a double bind the Republican Party has put themselves in that is only made more deep from this race. There was also some thinking that Roe may benefit them politically. What we're seeing is the exact opposite, right? That it tends to, at least so far, uh, in these early matchup contests and in these primaries, we're seeing that it has been, in fact, Democrats who tend to be benefiting even more. Now some Republican candidates in competitive races, they're trying to soften their message, and even their stance on abortion. Take a look. We have a new digital ad from Republican Blake Masters running, of course, for Senate in Arizona. Take a look. Look, I support a ban on very late term and partial birth abortion. And most Americans agree with that. That would just put us on par with other civilized nations. So he also rebooted his campaign website, deleted lines about being 100 percent pro-life, is instead focusing on limits to abortion rights. Emily, I mean, what do you make of those? If he has said, oh, you know, his policies are he wants them to be I think he called them a living document or he wants them to be to be fluid. Right. OK, this seems like a big change. 
It is, right? And he's been trying to cast himself as common sense and his Democratic rival as the extremist one. And here he is scrubbing all the extremist language from his campaign website. Uh, yes, it can be a living document, but these are pretty drastic changes that he's making, obviously, to protect himself uh, ahead of his contest. He's removed language like abortionist. That's very extremist. He no longer is vocalizing that he wants to support uh, a federal personhood, which mm-hmm. would uh, could make abortion murder, especially if a uh, fetus is considered a person uh, before the point of vitality. Um, So a lot of this is him trying to cast himself as more moderate as he looks toward this very competitive race. We should note also that a Republican super PAC is chopping down on the funding it wants to spend on him in this race. That's going to hurt his chances drastically. They are looking uh, like they're sidestepping this race, not seeing it as competitive as it could be. It's also interesting, the White House has said, um, really doubling down, right? So we heard this comparison President Biden made, uh, not on camera, but talking about MAGA Republicans as, quote, semi, getting closer to semi-fascism. I wonder, in terms of doubling down on that message, is that effective messaging for Democrats? I mean, I think you're seeing a Democratic Party that's increasingly feeling confident about Mm -hmm. its midterm positions and wants to draw those contrasts directly with Republican candidates. And we've seen Biden torque up the language on this uh, every step of the way. I mean, he I remember they were originally calling them extreme MAGA Republicans. Mm -hmm. Now we've gotten to this kind of semi-fascist language. Every step of the way, they're trying to draw more stark contrast with that Republican base, saying that that Donald Trump January uh, 6th-esque version of Donald Trump has taken over the Republican Party, and that's the choice that voters have in November. I think you're going to see some Republicans try to push back on that, try to say he's painting them with too broad of a brush, but that's going to be harder to do when you look at the reality of candidates they have on their slate. Not only Blake Masters or or Doug Mastriano, someone who was at Mm -hmm. the Capitol uh, out in Pennsylvania, but look at these Secretary of State races uh, where they have people who have openly embraced uh, uh, election conspiracies who are now in those positions to then run the election system. That is what is giving Democrats the confidence to be able to make such language that I think would be probably considered unfathomable in American politics five, ten years ago, someone calling the other side semi-fascist. Now you have the president doing that, and it's barely gotten a, a uh, it's only kind of a blip on the radar, partially because of the way Republicans themselves have moved. Let's, let's be honest. There's a long list of things we couldn't have imagined maybe five, six <laughs> years ago, in 10 years of American politics. When we look at, though, where we are, right, and these shifts that we have seen in really just the last month or so, month to six weeks, it's going to be a very busy couple of months ahead. I mean, is it worth trying to game it out at this point? Uh, it's, it's going to be a very busy couple of busy months ahead, to, to say the very least. It is worth gaming out. It always is trying to project because... The Democrats and the Democratic Party are feeling very emboldened uh, and very positive uh, series of legislative wins. Um, mm-hmm. And as well, everything with everything going on in, the, in Mar-a-Lago, the FBI search and how um, the former president and his allies are responding to it. They have a lot of momentum with them now. And I think that uh, President Biden is actually getting a pretty encouraging response when he gets more combative, when uh, the White House Twitter account turns around and tries to defend uh, the Student Loan Forgiveness Act by getting a little snarky, um, giving people a little more of what they asked for. I think that this is the tone that we will see in in coming months. All right. Well, buckle up. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Emily has said, nice to see you both. Thank Thank you. The Fed chair warning Americans, no gain without any pain, talking specifically about inflation. So what does that mean for you?
In our money lead, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell declaring an all-out fight against inflation today, pledging the central bank will, quote, use our tools forcefully to attack inflation, which is still running near its highest level in more than 40 years. This, even as a key indicator shows, soaring prices did take a little bit of a breather last month. CNN's Rahel Solomon joining us now with more on this. Um, Jerome Powell really not mincing words today. Absolutely not. This was a short speech, but clearly made an impact. It was only about eight minutes, but a Fed chairman being very clear, uh, sending the message out saying, let me be clear, essentially, we are on a path of lowering inflation and that will look like higher interest rates. And we will not pivot from that path until we start to see uh, sustained, clear evidence that inflation is lowering. Also, however, acknowledging, and this is what's getting a lot of attention, that there will be some pain involved. Take a listen. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. And certainly the strongest language I have heard mm-hmm. from the chairman, so not leaving any room for misinterpretation, which some would argue some of his last comments uh, really left some uh, confused about what the path ahead looked like. But Chairman Powell today being very clear that that will look like higher interest rates, uh, which will cause pain for many. Yeah. So it's not going to be pretty, but you have to go through it, right? To get to to this point is what I was hearing. Boy, the markets did not like this. I mean, at the end of the day, the Dow down a thousand points. This was rough. This is something we haven't seen, this type of market reaction in two months. Every S&P 500 sector closed lower. Every Dow component closed lower. This was a message that was felt on Wall Street and Main Street in terms of the real economy. Nearly 60 percent of Americans have some sort of stock exposure. So uh, what we saw in the markets today impacts many people, whether you're invested in terms of your portfolio, your 401k, or whether you're uh, more actively investing. You are looking at your investments today feeling uh, a little less wealthy, a little less well off than you were yesterday. Let me tell you what I'm not looking at today. I am not looking at my 401k, actually, because I feel like it might be a little bit depressing. One, one, let's add on an up note, right? There is a key inflation measure. We got some more detail on this today. This is one the Federal Reserve likes. What did we learn? We learned that inflation is easing, which is a good sign. But this does echo what we've seen in uh, some of the more recent inflation reports, too. This is largely energy-driven. Energy Mm -hmm. prices fall, and so we saw inflation fall. Uh, Chairman Powell did respond and did address the fact that we've started to see lower inflation rates. He said something to the effect of, uh, look, we welcome Uh, But a single month's improvement falls far short of what the committee will need to see in terms of uh, stopping its fight. So it's certainly welcome news, Mm -hmm. but it's still too soon to declare victory. And that's why you're seeing some of the reaction you've seen in the markets today. Which gets back to what you said in the beginning, too, right, that he said we're going to need to see that this is really working before we stop. Exactly. And that's going to be months at least. All right. Well, we'll buckle up. Thank you. Rahel, good to see you. Appreciate it. The Biden administration is finally revealing the estimated price tag for the student loan relief plan. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre telling CNN the loan forgiveness could cost about $24 billion per year. Now, that's assuming just 75 percent of eligible Americans take advantage of the relief. CNN's MJ Lee is live at the White House. So, MJ, that number is actually a lot lower than some other estimates. What more do we know about that number? Yeah, Erica, we are, as you said, starting to see the White House offer more details on the big question of how much exactly is this plan going to cost? And as you said, the White House is saying that according to their early estimate, that cost is going to be around $24 billion a year. Uh, That is less than some other estimates we've seen, including from Penn Wharton. Their estimate was that it could cost upwards of $1 trillion over 10 years. Now, when CNN asked the White House uh, about that discrepancy between those two estimates, they essentially said, 
said, look, we are certain that $1 trillion is not the ballpark that they are looking at. And they said a part of the reason is that the model that they used uh, took into account a scenario where just 75% of eligible borrowers would take advantage of this program. They said that they decided to go with that number because a similar education department program, that's the percentage of people they saw participating in that program uh, as well. Now, the White House is obviously making clear that they would like to see as many people as possible participating in this loan forgiveness uh, program. Uh, The president saying just this afternoon to reporters, though, that even if just a fraction of the people who are eligible participated and benefited from this program, he would be happy about that. We'll be watching. The White House um, has taken a pretty aggressive approach, meantime, to Republican critics of this. Not just Republicans, we should point out. Democrats critical as well. But they're specifically uh, really centering on these Republican critics of the plan. Tell us a little bit more about that response, MJ. Yeah, you know, Republicans have been pretty quick to criticize this program, uh, saying that it is going to add to inflation. It is going to uh, increase the deficit and also bringing up the issue of fairness. And what we have seen in part from the White House is is responding uh, by tweeting at Republican members, uh, saying that these are Republican members who have uh, had their PPP loans forgiven. These are obviously loans uh, given out during the COVID era uh, so that businesses could pay for a payroll, for example. Uh, Now, the president uh, even weighed in on this himself when he was talking to reporters just a little while ago. Uh, This is what he said. And I found it absolutely fascinating that some of the folks who were talking about this is big spending are the same people that got $158,000 in PPP money, including the, what's the name, that woman who believes in the, anyway, a whole lot of Republicans uh, got a lot of money. Now, there are some questions as to whether student loans uh, versus PPP loans, whether they make for a fair comparison, uh, particularly given that PPP loans largely were given out and meant to be forgiven as long as uh, these business owners met certain criteria in terms of how they use that money. Uh, But Erica, all in all, we are just seeing uh, how much the issue of student loans is is being so politically charged as an issue, uh, particularly as we get closer to the midterm elections. It certainly draws up a lot of emotion in people, that is for sure. MJ Lee, great to see you today. Thank you. Coming up here, a Louisiana woman says abortion restrictions are now forcing her her to continue her pregnancy, to carry it to term, only to have to bury her baby. In our health lead, new complications as doctors, women, politicians, and of course, plenty of lawyers try to navigate the deeply personal and painful decisions that need to be made. This, of course, in the wake of the Supreme Court throwing out abortion rights that were protected by Roe v. Wade. CNN's Diane Gallagher is in Louisiana, following rather a Louisiana case for us. A woman says there that she is being forced to, quote, carry my baby to bury my baby. Diane, what's happening in this case? Yeah, Erica. So Nancy Davis found out last month that her unborn child would not survive at a 10 week abortion, excuse me, at a 10 week ultrasound. uh, They diagnosed the fetus as having something called a crania. It is a lethal, rare birth defect where the skull does not form inside uh, the womb. Now, doctors recommended she have an abortion, but told her she would probably have to travel out of state for it because they didn't think that they could perform one in Louisiana due to the state's new near total 
ban on abortion. Now, in the six weeks since Nancy Davis had that ultrasound, uh, lawmakers have said, oh, no, Ukraine does count underneath this narrow, medically futile exception. In fact, 36 lawmakers uh, sent a letter out saying that even though it's not listed, it does count. And look, Doctors say that that's where the big issue is here, that these new laws that are coming up around the country after the reversal of Roe versus Wade are vague and confusing and that they aren't sure what they can do. The one in Louisiana carries stiff criminal penalties for doctors. Now, we spoke with women's clinic in Baton Rouge. They said they couldn't talk about a specific patient, but said that since all of this has happened, things are complex and said, quote, we look at each patient's individual circumstances and how to remain in compliance with all current state laws to the best of our ability. Even if a specific diagnosis falls under medically futile exceptions provided by the Louisiana Department of Health, the laws addressing treatment methods are much more complex and seemingly contradictory. Now, that is what Nancy Davis's attorney, Ben Crump, said today, calling the law clear as mud saying that it has caused his client excruciating pain over the past six weeks, which she describes here. Basically, they said I had to carry my baby to bury my baby. They seemed confused about the law and afraid of what would happen to them if they performed a criminal abortion according to the law. Now I am preparing to go out of state for this procedure next week I want you to imagine what it's been like to continue this pregnancy for another six weeks after this diagnosis. This is not fair to me, and it should not happen to any other woman. And that is key there for Nancy Davis as she stood on the steps with her family and her attorney of the Louisiana State Capitol. They want the state legislature to come back for a special session to amend that near total ban on abortion, make things less vague, less confusing, so other people don't have to go through what Nancy Davis is right now. As far as her situation, Erica, she will travel out of state for the procedure. She said that she will likely go here to North Carolina because one of the few places in the region that at 16 weeks, she can still receive an abortion. It is excruciating. You think about the emotional and the mental toll uh, for her. Diane, appreciate it. Thank you. No lights, sweltering heat, a fuel shortage causing major power outages. People now forced to sleep outside in tents or outside rather on the street. That's next. In our world lead, late August. Pretty terrible time to be without electricity. It is hot, it's humid, your food spoils. Downright miserable for a lot of folks. For most of the day, every day, though, that is exactly the situation right now in Cuba. CNN Savannah correspondent Patrick Oppmann shows us things, in fact, are so bad, people are now demonstrating against Cuba's authoritarian government. For many Cubans, this is now their life, waiting in the sweltering heat for the lights to come back on. In this neighborhood, people say the power is regularly cut by the government amid growing energy shortages for up to 16 hours each day. It's very difficult, really uncomfortable. When it's time to go to bed, you can't, he says. The mosquitoes eat you alive. The heat doesn't let you sleep. Power cuts are nothing new here, but Cubans are now dealing with the worst outages in decades as a perfect storm of economic calamity a drop in tourism and skyrocketing inflation batters the island. 
The Cuban government blames increased U.S. government sanctions for the outages, but lack of investment in the state-controlled energy sector and a massive fire that destroyed Cuba's main oil storage facility have brought the crisis to the brink. As the lights go out more frequently, Cubans fed up with the outages have taken to the streets in rare protests that the government usually does not allow. Cuba's president says protesters need to be patient. Some people take advantage of the situation to shout anti-revolutionary slogans, he says. Others take part in vandalism and throw rocks and break windows, and that doesn't resolve the situation. But government officials admit there is no quick solution to the outages. The power outages have a major impact on people's lives. When the lights go out, food spoils more quickly in the summer heat. People can't go to work or to school, and they often have to sleep outside on the streets where they're exposed to mosquitoes that carry diseases like dengue. At this point, there's no indication that the energy crisis is going to get better anytime soon. Wendy is nearly nine months pregnant and most nights has to sleep on the ground outside her house. She says out loud what many here are thinking. The food spoils and there's no food in the stores. There's nothing, she says. This is going from bad to worse. I want to leave. Already a record number of Cubans have left the island in the last year. For those that remain, they know there are more long nights like this one to come. And Erica, over 170,000 Cubans have crossed the last year from uh, Mexico into the United States. Hundreds of more have taken to the seas and the dangerous crossing across the Florida Strait. So while the government says the energy crisis will get better here soon, uh, many Cubans are not sticking around to find out. Yeah, what a horrible situation, uh, Patrick. It's so important, though, that we learn about it. Thank you. Uh, in our Earth Matters series, yet another example of climate change bringing on a humanitarian disaster. Pakistan usually has three or four cycles of monsoon rains every year. Well, authorities say right now it is actually going through its eighth cycle. The results of these super flood torrents are shocking. Since mid-June, nearly 1,000 people have died, upwards of 33 million people. That's about 15 percent of the country's population have been impacted here. Hundreds of thousands now living in tents or temporary relief camps. Entire provinces are cut off from electricity, gas, and the Internet. Here in the U.S. this week alone, record-setting rainfall and flooding in parts of Texas and Mississippi. And even when the skies are clear, rivers filled with runoff water continue to rise. The Pearl River in Jackson, Mississippi, isn't actually expected to crest until next Tuesday. A flood watch stretches through southern Mississippi into Alabama and the Florida Panhandle, affecting Pensacola, Mobile, and Hattiesburg. CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchar is keeping track of all of this for us. So where are some of the most concerning trouble spots right now, Allison? Yeah, it's surprisingly, Erica, in the same spots that they've been dealing with a lot of the heavy rain. But just as you mentioned, the rivers, the creeks and streams, those are more of the delayed concerns because it takes time for those to crest to get to their highest points. But you still also have rain coming down. Here's a look. All the areas where you see green here, that's where we have the flood watches. Several of these still in effect for at least a couple more hours along the Gulf Coast region. Look at how much rain has fallen just since Sunday. You're talking widespread areas of six inches 
but a few of these spots where you see the pink, now you're talking eight, even 10 or more inches. When we talk about the rivers, yes, this is the Pearl River currently sitting at moderate flood stage. It is still forecast to reach 36 feet. That does, that's the threshold for major flood stage. But this is assuming there's no more rain that it would still likely reach major flood stage by late Monday, early Tuesday. The problem is we do have more rain in the forecast, especially over the next 24 to 36 hours. Here's a look at a lot of those showers and thunderstorms on the radar right now. You can see several around Baton Rouge, just to the west of New Orleans. Some of these showers and thunderstorms also still around Jackson, even around Biloxi, Mississippi. It's not the only spot, though. Even a little bit farther east along the Gulf Coast, you have a lot of these showers and thunderstorms firing up across Florida, too. Very heavy bands of showers and thunderstorms across Orlando. So again, a lot of the concern with these areas, Erica, is the potential for flooding over the next few days on top of what these communities have already had. Oh, it is rough to think about. Allison Chinchar, appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the countdown is on. NASA headed back to the moon. Up next, CNN has an inside look at the Artemis mission. We're back now with our out-of-this-world lead and a live look from Kennedy Space Center. The Artemis rocket on the launch pad there, ready to blast off toward the moon on Monday. NASA's quest to return Americans to the moon comes as modern-day space exploration is increasingly privatized. And there's a new and growing space race with China. CNN Space and Defense correspondent Kristen Fisher takes us inside the mission. It's been a long time since NASA's had its own candle to light. Lift off. 11 years since the last space shuttle launch, 50 years since the last launch of the Apollo program. The Challenger has landed. But now, Apollo's mythological twin sister, Artemis, is on the launch pad and ready to fly. To all of us that gaze up at the moon, dreaming of the day humankind returns to the lunar surface, folks, we're here. The Artemis rocket, or SLS, is years behind schedule, billions over budget. But it's also the most powerful rocket ever built, and it's designed to launch people even deeper into space than the moon. Our sights are not set on the moon. Our sights are set clearly on Mars. But first, it has to pass this uncrewed test flight with only mannequins on board. Artemis 1 will launch from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, but Mission Control is at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. This is Apollo Control Houston. The same place that controlled every Apollo and shuttle mission. This is where it all happens as far as um, human spaceflight. Rick LeBrode is in charge of it all as lead flight director. LeBrode and his team have been training in this room for this moment for over three years. When flight day comes, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. It's when it really gets real. After launch, the SLS rocket will separate from the Orion crew capsule on top. Orion will then fly a quarter of a million miles to the moon and then go 40,000 miles beyond it farther than any spacecraft designed to carry humans has ever flown. We're going to swing by the moon, and when we swing by it on the way there, we're going to be 60 miles off the surface. It's going to be incredible. The, the, the pictures we get as we go by are going to be really impressive. After orbiting the moon for more than two weeks, Orion will head back to Earth, hitting speeds of around 25,000 miles per hour and temperatures half the surface of the sun, something engineers can't replicate here on Earth. The number one highest priority for our mission is actually to test the heat shield. Liftoff of Space Shuttle Columbia. It was a damaged heat shield that caused Space Shuttle Columbia to burn up on re-entry, killing seven astronauts. So testing it before astronauts fly on Artemis II is crucial. 
For me, Artemis 1 is exciting, but it's really a stepping stone, a milestone to getting humans back in the vicinity of the moon, and that, that is awesome. Victor Glover is one of more than 40 astronauts in the running to fly on Artemis 2 and Artemis 3, which will land the first woman and the first person of color on the moon. We explore for all people, but now we can actually say we explore with all people. And Vice President Kamala Harris has just announced that she will be attending the launch as well. Erica, a lot can happen between now and Monday, but as of now, weather conditions are 70% favorable and all systems are go for launch. Erica. I'll keep my fingers crossed throughout the weekend that the weather holds. Kristen, appreciate it. Thank you. And just a reminder to tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday morning. Dana Bash will be talking to Democratic Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, and the Democratic nominee for the Ohio Senate seat, Congressman Tim Ryan, plus New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Sununu, pardon me. It's all at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern Sunday morning right here on CNN. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper on this Friday. Thanks for joining us. Our coverage continues right now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.